please let me know um, if there's any volume, any sound. Uh, I'm going to have to wait for a second just for people to pop on. Okay, people are starting to join. Please let me know if you can hear me. Uh, otherwise, I'm not exactly sure what the problem is or what I can do. Oh, yes, it's working. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Um, let me know if, if there's any problems. Um, uh, otherwise, I'm just going to start talking. Uh, basically, this is the second uh, Facebook Live I've done in a couple of days after not having done any for a while. Um, but I just want to get back into the way of it. Now I'm back home. And um, this Facebook Live, I want to talk about something that I'm very passionate about. Something that um, I, I want to write, actually I want my next book to be about this. I have to confess that um, I haven't been writing as much as I would like to be. Uh, I wrote six books in a row and then I took a break. Uh, I took a break to move, uh, to make some changes in my life and also so that I could speak more. But I find it hard to get back into it. Um, but I'm passionate about the theme of the absurd. The absurd in faith. And um, it's a theme, to be honest, that has been in my work from day one. If you read my early work, especially my work with ICON, the community that I helped to set up um, and facilitated, uh, you'll see elements of the absurd in it. Um, and I've been becoming more explicit about that and more theoretical about that. So it's, it's in there, it's in my work, my last book, um, expresses it more clearly than ever, but I I want to concentrate on it this year. 2017 is the year of the absurd, and the cherry on the cake is that it's going to be the theme of my festival, my four-day festival in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, we're going to look at the absurd, the scandal of the absurd, um, and, and how that connects to faith. Now, if you're interested in this theme, you should come and join us for four days, because the theme will be uh, woven into the art and into the music and into the talks and into the general mischief but we actually only have 15 tickets left so there's very few I envisage just selling out before Christmas so if you do want to go get online and, and, and book and I, I will see you in April in my hometown and my favorite town in the world okay so the absurd why am I interested in this um, You'll find other talks I've given online recently that touch on this subject uh, because uh, it's, it's a big subject. We're only going to be able to do something very small this morning. But um, I want to kind of uh, introduce the absurd uh, through the art form data. Um, if, if you know, Dadaism kind of arose in the early 20th century, uh, 1915, you see in Zurich in Switzerland, there was a, a, a place, a bar called Café Voltaire, and these intellectuals, these artists and poets used this space to create a cabaret that basically was a protest against the very system of meaning and rationality itself. Now, this was the, around the First World War, and so Dadaism grew up um, as a way of critiquing and poking holes at <clears throat> the very systems of justification we use in order to justify violence, war, basically ideology itself. Um, 
And the word data is probably a made-up nonsense word. There's a, there's a few uh, theories about where it comes from, but the very early data is in Zurich, like they would do poetry that was completely nonsensical. They would create masks out of cardboard and do these bizarre rituals that, that made no sense. And people would come to the, this uh, cafe, watch these absurdist performances, and it was really an attempt to uh, explode um, the whole system of rationality and meaning um, that uh, that you know the Western philosophy and, and politics and and uh, used and culture used in order to kind of justify the the political cultural regimes and the religious regimes. So this was like playful. It was crazy. It was uh, you know some say like a um, obviously a political thing. For others, it was just a way of kind of like releasing tension at a crazy time. But this started in Zurich and then it quickly started to spread to other places in Europe. You see it happen exploding in Berlin. Uh, in Berlin, Dadaism became more explicitly political and started to attack the bourgeois. It attacked the um, political powers of the day, made fun of them, poked fun at them. Uh, then you see it moving from Berlin to um, uh, to New York and Cologne and Paris and there it became explicitly about critiquing the very nature of art what it is uh, to what an artwork actually is uh, Marcel Duchamp is probably the most famous dataist um, he didn't necessarily consider himself a dataist but he was de facto um, captured a lot of what they were about he would put like bicycle wheels in like, art galleries uh, windows, uh, stools, bottle racks, and say this is art. He famously put a urinal uh, uh, into a piece of art, um, and, uh, and you know, into an art gallery called it a piece of art. This was like an attempt at rupturing everything we thought about aesthetics. And then it moves like to London, where you see it impacting comedy and music. You see punk coming out of Dadaism. This, this musical outburst that questions the whole musical establishment. Who can create music? Who can create this type of art? Who can um, you know, be the spokespeople for a generation? Um, the, these, this incredible typography came out of this. You, know, you see it in the Sex Pistols, this very anarchic look, you know, God save the Queen with this kind of crazy asymmetrical typography. Um, you see it in Monty Python, which is kind of like absurdist, uh, dataist ideas being expressed in, in the life of Brian in, um, uh, in their weekly comedy shows and their sketches. Uh, and, and then you see it in, in, in America, you see it in David Bowie, Bowie incredibly influenced by the dataist movement, making songs up by cutting, uh, cutting words up and, and, and mixing them together in kind of montage and then just singing whatever the result is, right? This was like a deconstruct. In fact, Dadaists were so playful, they would create these conflicts. You know, the Dadaists in Berlin would attack the Dadaists in, in Cologne, and um, they would create fake stories, fake news stories about these fights and battles and all of this stuff. It, everything about Dadaism was playful and disruptive 
and was like a, a bomb in the playground of rationality and ideology. Um, even in terms of contemporary art coming out of New York and London, you see it in Tracy Emin, you see it in Damien Hirst, the Saatchi and Saatchi exhibitions that were happening in the late uh, 20th century. Um, there's a real, um, um, a real sense, a real hint of the absurd in, in that, or George and George and whatever. So Dadaism was, and if you, if you remember a previous Facebook post where I gave a definition of the absurd using Camus, um, the absurd is when a, an, a subject is seeking uh, meaning, seeking reason, rationality, and they confront a universe that doesn't give it, that withholds that. The experience is the absurd. In a sense, Dadaism in the political, in the art, and in the uh, cultural worlds kind of like confronted our desire for an ideology, a system of meaning to tell us what's right and wrong, good and bad, who's in and out, all of that is, is kind of disrupted. And it was very fertile. It gave birth to very strong grassroots um, activism and art, which still resonates today. Um, not, in, not in what you see in contemporary politics on social media and stuff, which I have to be critical of because it's not, it's not very dadist, um, but, but you see it in, as I say, in punk, in, um, in Bowie, in uh, some of the absurdist comedy of things like Monty Python, you know, this, this kind of stuff. Um, now, interestingly, it's, it didn't really have a revolution in religion. It didn't have a religious side. There, there's some things, like there's discordantism, um, which was a, a religion that I think was directly inspired by Dadaism and the, the spirit of the absurd. Uh, but my argument is that actually Christianity is a proto-Dadaist uh, intervention in life. Uh, that Christianity can be described as the ultimate punk. And th this is the scandal of Christianity, the scandal that we've been trying to avoid confronting for thousands of years. Because what we do as human beings when we encounter the experience of the absurd is we try to domesticate it, we try to flee from it, we try to eradicate it. And Christianity has been uh, a good expression of that, where people think of Christianity as the ultimate meaning system. It is that which tells us why we're here, what we're doing, where we're going, who's in charge of everything, right? It, it's basically a mythology in the sense of a myth is a story that tells us who we are, what we're about, why we're here. So Christianity is the ultimate mythos. It's, a, it's the ultimate narrative that tells us everything. And uh, maybe we in our finite minds can't know it all, but one day we will. You know, maybe not in this life, but in the next, right? The argument that I want to make is actually, no, Christianity, it, using the words of John Caputo, is not a projection, it's a projectile. It's not a, it's not a meaning-giving system, it's that which ruptures our understanding and systems of meaning. Now, uh, I'm not going to go into why I think that, although parables, I think, are the opposite of myths. Parables disrupt our sense of right and wrong, good and bad. They break into our world. Um, the Gospels, I think, operate... Um, in an anti-myth way. Um, the fact there's four of them and they contradict and 
you know, that they, they create. That, that's absurd in itself. The idea of four Gospels that contradict themselves, uh, where, you know, different things happen at different times. The clearing of the temple in one Gospel happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, or, well, in three of the Gospels, I think, and one of them at the very end. You know, the Judas has different motives and dies in different ways and, you know, uses the money in different things. Jesus ascends at different times. Um, and interestingly, an early church father tried to make one gospel out of the four, thought, well, let's just combine them all. And uh, the early church said, no, this is the wrong way to go. Uh, which is interesting because that's kind of like the ultimate fantasy of many religious people is to create a text that is without antagonism, without internal contradiction, um, that is basically um, scarred clean of the absurd. So I often wonder why more evangelicals haven't tried to create one gospel. Um, but I think it's because deep down we know that the four, the fact that they are antagonistic, um, itself communicates um, in something important. So I could look at that or I could look at the cross, the crucifixion itself um, is for me the ultimate rupture of meaning. Christ crucified, the idea of God dying is the absurd. Because God was traditionally thought of as the highest, most powerful being who has in, who's in control of everything, who knows all things. So the idea of being crucified, being cursed of God, no longer a citizen, placed in literally hell, because hell was the name, kind of hell comes from this idea of a, you know, a, a, you'll all know this, but outside the city there's a dump where you put the trash. And, you know, the people are crucified outside the city. It's kind of symbolic of you're the complete outsider. Technically, I think in Christianity, uh, the Christian is the one who identifies with, with hell. You know, that's, the, you know, the outside, the whatever, right? Um, anyway, so this is what, the, this idea of Christ crucified is the ultimate dataist absurdism. God dying, we don't hear the ridiculousness of that anymore. And part of my work has been to try to draw that back. And my early work was in community. And we tried to recreate it without really knowing it, without really having read much dataism. Uh, we created absurdist religious practices um, that attempted to disrupt our sense of meaning and our sense of the world, where God was not that which justified our world, but God was understood as that which breaks our worlds open. Right? I mean, even politically, something like Occupy Wall Street can be seen as a form of absurdist political intervention because it wasn't asking for something it wasn't presenting an alternative universe it was attempting to break into an already existing universe crack it open so that new possibilities might arise um, so you know take some of the examples of what we did with icon um, that I noticed uh, there was one we did called Oh, I think it was called Fundamentalism, but we did it at a festival. And outside there were protesters against what we were doing, and they were handing out this flyer that was, against, that was written against me by a guy in Belfast. And people had signs, the works, right? So the festival, we're going to try and chuck these people out, because as everyone was walking past, there were these discussions and arguments, and everything was happening outside. Now, the truth was, we set 
the protest up, right? It was our people, so we were like, we almost got them kicked out. We were like, yeah, definitely kick them out of the festival, right? And it was funny what happened outside. Some people got angry. Some people agreed with the protesters. Some people, like, um, engaged in discussion. Some people laughed, right? But you're walking in and you're experiencing this disruptive activity. And then, when everyone was sitting down, uh, this guy got up and said, let us worship God. Right, let us begin and worship the way, the truth, and the life. And he starts to sing this song. And it's just a typical, you know, chorus worship song about God being the truth and the rock and, you know, you know there for the people, etc. But then as the, as the lyrics were projected up, and very few people were singing because they knew Icon wasn't that kind of thing. But some people were singing along. But you had 2,000 people in the room in this theatre space watching this. The words began to deconstruct, fall apart. Until there were just these words like truth, justice, the rock, be my friend. And then as this worship leader continued to sing and some people sang with him, then other words came up saying, be my friend. Don't be my enemy. I shall crush my enemies beneath my feet. Be my friend. I am the truth. Those who uh, resist the truth, there will be gnashing of teeth. You know, these different things, phrases come out. And so suddenly this worship song became really kind of icky, really kind of weird and surrealist. And as you're singing along to it, you're, the words are changing. And, and when you see them deconstructing in these other phrases, these more violent phrases coming up. And then the guy stops and he tells his testimony of how he used to be a, a worship leader. He used to believe in God. Now he's an atheist. And, and he talked about that experience and what happened in his community as he came out. Um, now, there was also a soapbox on the stage. And at various times in the night, people got onto the soapbox. At one point, this woman got onto the soapbox and she didn't say anything for three minutes. She looks like she was going to speak and didn't say anything. And then these words behind her came up saying, a woman should remain silent in church. And then uh, another woman got up and she gave this beautiful three-minute sermon called The Singing Ministry of Christ. Absolutely stunning. And as soon as she finished, you heard the same sermon boom out over the loudspeakers with this DJ doing music over it. And you realised it was a sermon by Ian Paisley. Now, Ian Paisley was kind of our Donald Trump um, or Pat Robinson. And, you know, in his day, like, very, very... Um, aggressive fundamentalist guy who was involved in uh, kind of loyalism and a lot of the violence in Northern Ireland at one stage. And so this would be like, you know, for the people in the room, Donald Trump, but with this beautiful, heart-wrenching, incredible three-minute sermon, little element of the sermon called the Singing Ministry of Christ. Now, actually, we did a whole gathering on that sermon. We just played the whole thing with DJs playing over the top of it. And we had rocks on the tables. And every time he said something that you liked, we invited people to come up and put a rock on one side of these scales. And every time he said something you didn't like, to put a rock on the other side of the scales. And you just watched how the scales all went in favour of this guy who every, almost everybody in the room would think was terrible evil and horrible and in fact halfway through this guy jeff got up um, now for a little bit of background jeff 
is from a Catholic background, a Republican background. And Northern Ireland, it was loyalism versus republicanism. It was a war. A lot of people died. It was incredibly violent. Um, and these sides, you know, were, were enemies. Um, and Jeff got up and he told the story about his twin brother dying of cancer. He said, my, my twin brother was dying of cancer. And, you know, some friend of the family happened to work with Ian Paisley's daughter and must have said something to her. Because one Saturday, the whole family, this Republican family from the Falls Road, the Falls Road is like the area where Republicans lived. Um, they're all around the bed of their dying uh, brother, friend, son. And as they're standing there, somebody comes in and says, Ian Paisley's in the hospital and he's coming up to see you. And sure enough, they looked out and uh, coming up the corridor was Ian Paisley and he had his bodyguards. He always had bodyguards. And he's a huge guy. And he walks in and he says, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, I just heard what was happening. And uh, I just wanted to come in and, um, and see how you were all doing, see if there's anything I could do to help. You know, this family is like, this is the enemy. And Ian Paisley said, can I pray with you? And they said, yeah, so he prayed and he prayed over this guy who was dying of cancer. And then he got out his personal business card. He wrote his personal number. He gave it to one of the family members and said, if there's anything you need, just contact me. Uh, bodyguards remained outside and then he left. This was no publicity stunt. There was no papers, nothing. And Jeff just told the story and said, I don't know what to do with that. I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't been there experiencing it. But that's what happened. And then we continued on with the service. It was a very nice service. But anyway, this other one, we had these different things happening on the soapbox. And then everybody was given on the way in this rice paper. And were encouraged to write their, some belief they had on it uh, with food colouring. And this, the ritual that night was we said, these are our beliefs broken for you. And we shared them around and we consumed each other's beliefs. We chewed them up and we ate them and we brought them into the core of our being. Now, when you're watching an experience like this, you're like, what does it mean? And in some respects, I don't know. And I was part of the organizer, you know, but it disrupts and disturbs. And in a sense, for me, it opened up something new. Um, like another one that I wasn't part of, I came home for, I was living in America at the time, uh, Icon had got an abandoned, condemned building that used to be a police station in the centre of Belfast. It had barbed wire over it, it weeds growing over it, it was a building, it was hundreds of years old, it had barricades on it, it was like totally from a horror film. And it was, the night was called Resuscitation. We walked in and we were brought to a waiting room by a guy who had an IV drip and it was dressed in a, in a dressing gown, like a, in a uh, hospital. We had to fill out these health forms, but they had weird, weird, bizarre questions about belief and all of that. We filled them in and we gave them, gave them to this, this, this nurse. And depending on what we wrote, we got split into different groups. And then we, we were brought around this horror kind of like condemned police station with these prison cells 
and these like you know these rooms that were like interrogation rooms and in the various rooms weird things were happening in one room this person who was mostly naked was just writing in a black all black in chalk thousands of questions from from the ceiling to the floor was just full of questions uh, and thoughts and we were invited to go in and write questions there was a band in one of the rooms upstairs there was a, a psychoanalyst a real psychoanalyst who was psychoanalyzing somebody in a in a in a on a, a bed um, with this crucifixion scene with this kind of half uh, mangled mannequin and the individual who was on the couch seemed to be either Christ or the church or something like that. And at one point, the therapist just gets up. He takes out of his coat pocket these veils of blood and he starts giving them out, saying, this is my blood given to you. This is our blood given to you. At this point, someone fainted because it was very realistic and uh, you know it was quite interesting because it added to it because people were like is that part of the act is this part of it um, and eventually you know we ended up in the prison cells looking at each other uh, from like 10 feet apart and then from five feet apart and then from two feet apart just staring into each other's eyes um, while someone would I can't remember what they were saying but something about you know encountering the other it was a very absurdist experience um, uh, one final one was the very last icon ever. I was at it. Uh, it was at a festival called Greenbelt, and it was called The End. And you went into this room, and it was dark. It was music playing, and it was quite somber. But then the whole of the everyone involved in Icon at the time came on, and they were all dressed as Elvis Presley. So all as Elvis. And there was a crucifixion scene with Elvis on it, and it was all very weird, balloons popping. And then on the screen, this guy comes on, dressed as Elvis, sitting on a toilet, and he introduces the night, the end. And he says, you know, tonight there will be 12,758 words until the end. Welcome to Icon. And then uh, during the night at various times, it, there was a reminder, there are now 5,212 words until the end. And that night, everyone was asked to write on this piece of paper their dying words on their deathbed. What do they want to be remembered for? You know, what is the last thing they want to say? What, 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 is, what is their legacy? And people wrote this. And then a guy dressed as Elvis came around with a porta potty and asked people to read out what they said. Very serious things, you know, like, you know, I just want to be remembered for... You know the love I had for my children, and then they were they put the thing in the porta potty, they they flushed it and it sang this little song, and then Elvis Presley said to them, "It seems to me, you lived your life like a candle in the wind, right?" And this weird thing, the person beside me actually fainted again, <laughs> but it was very bizarre. And at the very end, we all wore blindfolds with the word "the end," which is the last two words. And this psychotherapist talked about how we walk out together because we had to, we put the blindfolds on and we walked out of the room together, guiding each other, not knowing where we were going, of course, bumping into things. And he said that we are walking into the future, not knowing, not able to see anything, using Walter Benjamin and the idea you can see behind you, but you can never see in front of you. We're going blind into the future. And all we have are the people to our right and to our left who are guiding us. We have each other as we walk blind into the future.
and that was the last icon. These are just elements of absurdism um, in the religious world. And part of the reason why we were exploring a lit an absurdist liturgy uh, was because of the idea that potentially the true scandal of, of Christianity is it, or that it ruptures our, our worlds of meaning. God is not that, what Descartes called the guarantor of meaning, that which guarantees our symbolic systems, our wars, our football team, our way of seeing the world. But in a sense, faith and the prophets are those who, in whatever epoch they are in, are the ones who get us to question and think and blow up our understanding. And that, in a sense, as I say, the crucifixion is the ultimate example of this. This is why I'm against atonement theories. I mean, I think it's interesting, two facts, and then I'll, I'll draw to a close. Well, you know, first fact is the church never had an official atonement theory. They never came down on an official, this is what the crucifixion means. Right? And secondly, it's interesting that there's so many. There's so many atonement theories. Um, there's like four or five really main ones, and then there's a proliferation of smaller ones. And they're all attempting to make sense of this. They're all attempts to render it into a system of meaning. Right? I like the conservative ones better because at least they sound mental. Right? Some of the liberal and progressive ones actually sound relatively reasonable and so are much more dangerous. Right? Um, that what if the whole reason that there are so many atonement theories is because the crucifixion defies reduction to meaning? Because it is absurd. It is the eruption of discordantism into systems of meaning. Um, it's like putting meaning onto Shoa to say that that the, the mass uh, extermination of Jewish people in Nazi Germany was because God was purifying the people or it was a test or it was because of sin or whatever it was. But to put meaning onto it, it it's, it's to do something profoundly unjust. Shoah is the rupture of meaning. Dadaism was Western, the Western intellectual um, expression of the loss of meaning. The First World War, Shoah, uh, the Crucifixion, these are all moments that defy domestication. They are scandalous because we cannot fit them into our systems. So what if to identify with the Crucifixion is to identify with being outside of systems? It is to identify with the complete outsider. It's to, it's to embrace punk surrealism dataism it's to it's to kind of in one sense live in the absurd whenever everything in life is uh is attempting to help us escape it by giving us easy answers politically religiously culturally but the existential idea is that we have to live in the complexity and um, embrace that and use it as fuel for real change okay that. That is just some initial thoughts on Dadaism and transformance art, which is what we did at ICON. To say, I, I wish I could take more time to um, justify the position uh, more, but I will do that in future uh, Facebook Lives, or I'll do that in the next book I write, or if you come to my festival. So let's see if there's any questions or thoughts, because this is probably a little bit more controversial. Um,
let's see. Uh, Michael's saying I, I got a bookshelf. This isn't. This is my my housemate's bookshelf. My books are all. Uh, he he was here first, so he got the bookshelf. My books are generally all. Uh, like that, and sadly, I've lost so many books in all of my travels over the years. Um, oh, a bit depressing, really. Um, Okay, Andrew saying Fight Club style. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good movie. That's, uh... <laughs> Trevor says, Pete, who are you wearing? <laughs> um, nobody, nobody interesting, I don't think. Uh, uh, Adrian says, are there any artists or authors that you could point to that you find inspiring or disturbing to create these kinds of alternative communities based on the absurd? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm interested. This is what I call transformance art, by the way, and I, I hope transformance art will continue to grow uh, and become, you know, a significant, albeit counter-cultural movement. Um, transformance art is the art, the liturgical enactment of the absurd. Um, in such a way, and it's called transformance art because performance art is obviously you know performance, but transformance art is this 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 encounter with the absurd that transforms us, that changes us. Um, you know, I've written about twenty of our icon gatherings down in various places, and. I'm hoping to write more of them down, maybe sometime in the future. Before I die, I want to record all of them. Um, uh, so, you know, I would look at some of those things, but we were inspired by so many different places. The best thing to do is get great poets, artists, and musicians uh, together who are who have that spirit of Dadaism somewhere in their work, and then just create your own thing. Just go for it and do it. And it works. I mean, we were, you know... We, we ran for 14 years and, and um, you know, I think, you know, did something that's, well, you know, now we're talking about it in the U.S. and I'm talking about it all over the world. So um, there's, there's, uh, there's in Tasmania, uh, there's a guy, Luke Crisps, who's doing some fantastic transformance art stuff. Um, and there's, there's various other places. Tasmania is probably as far, the furthest place away in the world you could ever be. So it's going to be hard to go there, but um, he's doing great work. Um, um, uh, Angela says, in, in practical application, how do you embrace the absurd? Yes. This is, this is basically, okay, can, I'm going to do a little bit more and I'll finish. I'm going to use it. I've, I've talked about this before, but um, from, from the psychoanalytic perspective, right, the child, as we grow up, we desire certain things that we can't get. We want to eat chocolate every day. We want to win all the games that we play. We want to climb that tree. But reality stops this. Your parents say you can't eat chocolate all day. Other kids say you can't win the games because I want to win the games. Your body won't let you climb the tree. Um, this is the difference between pleasure principle where you want things and reality principle which stops you from getting them. And the idea, of course, is that we think the reality principle is a problem, but actually it allows you to get pleasure. 
the fact if you got rid of the reality principle and you were able to get everything you wanted all the time, it would actually be really, it's called melancholia and philosophy. It's a disaster. It's a curse. This is, this is the, the meaning of um, the Oedipus story. You know, this, this, you get what you want and it's a curse. And also Adam and Eve. Um, <clears throat> so we live in that space and that's the absurd between the pleasure principle and the reality principle, we experience that. And we conspire with uh, industries that say we can give you your, all your pleasure without reality. You, you can have everything you want. The secret is that. Materializing your, your, your with positivity is that. Name it and claim it as a religious version. Or we conspire with industries that say, you know, just embrace life and death and, you know, you know embrace the nothingness of existence. Both of those are ways to domesticate and not embrace the absurd. The reason why I say Christianity is a religion of the absurd rather than a religion of the pleasure principle or a religion of the reality principle is because it says we have to embrace this space of the antagonism itself and enjoy it. And, that, and what that looks like, and I've used this before, is Camus' rebel. The rebel is the person who is able to enjoy their discontent enjoy their dissatisfaction, turn it to something positive and something good. So to embrace the absurd is kind of to enjoy doubt, ambiguity and complexity, for example. Because doubt is a lack, it's an antagonism, it's a lack of knowledge, it's, a, it's an unknown. Doubt and unknowing is, is an experience of the absurd. Because we want meaning, we want to understand, we want patterns. So when you look at a Kandinsky painting and it resists giving any meaning, the idea is partly you experience the absurd in looking at the Kandinsky because you know it, it resists giving you what you desire. But to enjoy a Kandinsky painting is to enjoy the absurd and the disruption, to get something out of it. Um, so that's what the, the liturgy of transformance art is attempting to do. It takes something like doubt, for example, that people see as negative and bad and run from, they want someone to give them the answer, and so they fall for charlatans. And it helps you go, doubt's a great thing. That's brilliant. Doubt means there's more to discover. Doubt means I can listen to other people. Doubt means I have to act, because that's another for another time, but because I hear the call of my neighbor, but I never quite know exactly what to do. So I'm responsible for that, and I have to take that responsibility on board. That's the existential move. That's what I think is missing from a lot of political discourse at a popular level today. It's the attempt to find a, you know, there is a right way of thinking and everything else is completely wrong. You're a racist or sectarian or uh, uh, a sexist or whatever. Because there's an attempt to go, like, there's, there's a way of thinking that is right and pure. For the existentialists, like, us, oh, a lot more messy than that. You know, we enter into this world... Uh, we, and, and we have to act, but we may end up realizing that we're the problem or that the people we thought were the problem years later we realize aren't. And, you know, we kind of enter into this complexity. So that's what it looks like in practice. And I'm just using one example of doubt because that's, that's the one I started with in my first book. Doubt, it was about going, don't get rid of it, don't fear it, don't flee it. Enjoy it, embrace it. And the Transformance Art Liturgy helps try and create a space where that was encouraged. Okay. Um, I probably talked too long, but then there's Charles saying, where is a good starting point on learning how to perform transformance art? You know, 
I would like read, not that I'm asking you to buy my book or anything, but like the second half of my How Not to Speak of God is all transformance art. It's all, and it's not even the best ones. I wish I, it's some of the best ones, but it's some of the ones I need to write some more down. But that's a good place to start. Look at what we were doing there. But in all, most of my books, I try to mention at least a couple of Transformers Art Gatherings. I think in The Idolatry of God, my last chapter looks at two. Um, and uh, maybe even Insurrection looks at one or two. So they are dotted around my work. And... Um, that's, that's one, one example. But look at cabaret. Cabaret is a form of absurdism. Um, uh, Thomas Altizer, you know, his vision um, was to create a liturgical experience of radical theology. And he wanted to create, I forget what he was calling it, but, but it was basically a cabaret, a liturgical cabaret. And, uh, you know, so, so, so check out that stuff. Look at absurdist comedians. Um, we're getting one, hopefully for the festival. Yeah, because because uh, we, we haven't officially uh, nailed it down, but there's lots of interesting absurdist comedians who are both hilarious and very disturbing. And I think in America you had an absurdist comedic tradition in the, um, maybe in the 70s or whatever, there, was a, there were these comedians who would get on stage and do incredibly, um, uh, what's the word, incredibly disturbing things like reading entire books and stuff like that. So, um, there we go. Thank you for, for uh, checking in. You should let me know if you want me to talk about any other themes. Because I've done 20 of these now, so I'm going to start running out of ideas of what to talk about. So if you have like thoughts, things that you'd like to hear me talk about. But I'm, I'm not, I'll only talk about stuff that I know about. I, there's no point me talking about something I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. Otherwise, you're just hearing my I reckon. So I want you to know that when you click into these Facebook Lives, you're not just hearing my I reckon. Um, you know, I, I'm wanting to try and, you know, give you something I've really thought about. doesn't mean I'm right. Probably actually I'm wrong. But at least, you know, um, it's not just because I had a dream last night and I want to share it. And I like kittens and the colour purple. Uh, Angela says, so utterly letting go of any absolute truth or absolute anything and being comfortable with the ultimate ambiguity is fully practising absurdity. The only thing I'd say about that is actually... <clears throat> I'm a big fan of what's called the real and truth, but we have to look at what those words mean. I think the truth is the projectile. So it's not that I think, so it's not relevant. It's like the truth is the antagonism itself. It's like, think about it like evolution. What's the one thing that's constant in evolution? The antagonism itself, the non-at-oneness of being that creates this conflict that generates new things. So in transformance art, there is the real, and the real is the rupture. Um, and, uh, and so there is this, in a sense, weird commitment to an absolute. Uh, that, but it's not a positive absolute. It's an absolute that always arrives as an absolute new. Um, this is even, you know, there's elements of that in uh, Karl Barth's uh, Epistle to the Romans or in Paul Tillich's uh, My Search for Absolutes. Uh, not that I'm trying to say, look, even those conservatives like what I'm saying. But uh, just, um, you know, Karl Barth's, Karl Barth has a sense of what, what is the truth. The truth is the no to all the yeses. The truth is the, the explosion that breaks apart all of our worlds. Um, so it's a weirdly, the truth is a subtraction, not an addition. Uh, okay, the, so you keep, you're always asking so many interesting and cool questions. Um, 
There's Tracy says, I love listening to your I reckons. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll do a few I reckons. This is what I think. Um all right. Thanks so much for checking in. I'm gonna go get a coffee at my local coffee shop and maybe even do some writing if I feel it's so inspired. Uh hopefully I'll see some of you in LA on the twelfth of November. Remember I'm doing a whole day on this stuff. Two days, in fact. You pay for one day, but you get two. If you stay the extra day, you come to my community that I'm part of. We go to my favorite coffee shop and uh, all of that. I might see you there. I'm going to be in Detroit in a few weeks. I might see you in Detroit uh, or in Belfast. See ya.